I'm Noel DeBean. You're on ABC Radio Round Australia. Coming up now, Father Frank Brennan joins us, Jesuit and law professor. He's been speaking to the law students of Notre Dame University on the subject of asylum seekers. But first, a bit of music. He's chosen a piece called Hymn to Love. It's from the album Deeper South by Shane Howard. And though I have the power of prophecy To penetrate all mystery And the faith to move mountains Without love I'm really just nothing at all. Hymn to Love, choice of our guest in this hour, Frank Brennan S.J., law professor and I suppose conscience of the nation, they say. Welcome back to the program, Father Frank. Thanks, Noel. Good to be with you. Now, that piece of music, Hymn to Love, Shane Howard on Deeper South, why that? What, what do you like about it? Well, I've long been a fan of Shane's music and I was very privileged to do his wedding in the old Crossley Church down there around near Caroit. I did the wedding of one of his daughters, so I've known the family very well for a long time. And this, I think, is the Australian folk singer coming back to scriptural roots and I think it's the gospel in contemporary form. In one sense, the gospel in contemporary form is what you try to do as a Jesuit, in one sense. It is in that uh, basically no other form has such relevance for people, I'd have to say, not music. The speech you gave this week at Notre Dame, it was, I think in one sense, you're speaking to the future of the legal profession. So it's aimed at that pitch. And some of the stuff was aimed at those bigger issue uh, ideas. But then you've published the talk in Eureka Street and you've called it Being Clear and Misty-Eyed About Human Rights and Asylum Seekers. Why? Because our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, has used the image about eyes quite often in relation to refugees, and I think it's quite telling. When he was confronted during the election campaign about the appalling treatment of these people on Manus Island and Nauru, he brazenly said, well, we can't be misty-eyed about these things. Mm. Well, I think it wasn't so much a question of being misty-eyed, but him being rather blind to these things. Then when he went to the United Nations last month, He boasted that our policy was the best in the world and that we had to be clear-eyed about these things. Now, with all respect to Mr Turnbull, and I know he's a very intelligent man, but I think the poor fellow's been living in too much of a Canberra bubble because our problem with asylum seekers is minuscule, absolutely minuscule, compared with Europe. And yet what we have done, particularly with the people on Manus and Nauru, is just unconscionable and, of course, unrepeatable. All your listeners have got to do is imagine to yourself, if you've got a policy which you say is the best in the world, but then you have to turn around to the rest of the world and say, well, look, actually it could only work if you are an island nation continent. Mm. You couldn't have any land borders. You can't be Greece, etc. Yes, and it could only work if you don't have any refugees fleeing persecution in the country next door. Oh, and by the way, you'd also need a couple of little poor islands who are neighbours who would respond to your overtures with your checkbook to take your refugee caseload. 
I mean, it is just the most preposterous thing to suggest that any other country on earth could do it. So it's not the best policy in the world. It's just the policy which Australian politicians thinks works for us, no matter what the moral cost. In fact, in your talk, you called this policy a disgrace. I did. That's a strong word. It is a strong word, but no, when you think that it's posited on the idea that people were to be taken to these islands, now we're including children, remember, mm. on Manus Island, so they're proved to be refugees. They've been there for over three years. Now, Nauru is a country of only 10,000 people. Mm. So the actual legal memorandum of understanding that was negotiated with Nauru was done on the basis that, yes, Nauru would be able to resettle some people mm. and that every 12 months Australia would negotiate a deal with Nauru as to how many they would resettle and Australia would accept responsibility for the rest. This is the memorandum of understanding that you talk about in your speech. Indeed. Yep, it's yep. the memorandum which was signed by Kevin Rudd as the Prime Minister mm. in the lead-up to the 2013 election. Mm. It's the memorandum which Mr Abbott as Prime Minister said, yes, we'll take that, thank you very much. He just had his usual boast that, of course, Mr Rudd wouldn't be able to implement it, but that he would. Now, suffice to say, neither Mr Abbott nor Mr Turnbull has implemented that memorandum of understanding. They have breached it year in and year out, and they have caused great harm not only to the proven refugees, but also to the people and to the nation of Nauru. Can we just spell that out? Because not everybody will know what's in the memorandum of understanding, of course. What does it guarantee that is concerning you? What it guarantees is this. It was understood that people who'd come by boat to Australia would be taken to Nauru to process their claims. Yeah. Now, we used to do that with John Howard's specific solution. Yeah. But then when they were proved to be refugees, the second part of the MOU said that Nauru would agree to resettle some of those proven refugees mm -hmm. in Nauru. In Nauru itself. In Nauru itself but that it was acknowledged that Nauru wouldn't be able to resettle all of those who are proved to be refugees. So the memorandum goes on to say that Australia has the responsibility to assist in finding places to resettle these people. And furthermore, if there are people who are proved not to be refugees, Australia has the responsibility to get those people removed from Nauru as quickly as possible. Well, what's happened? Over three years on, nobody has been moved, whether refugee or not, and no agreement has been announced to the Australian public as to how many Nauru will take and how many we remain responsible for. You're a law professor. Uh, I think the exact words were that the country would make all efforts to ensure that all transferees depart the Republic of Nauru within as short a time as possible, as is reasonably necessary for the implementation of this Memorandum of Understanding. Now, you're a law professor. What does as short a time as is reasonably necessary mean in your view? Well, I think it means much less than three years. And what I'm absolutely certain of, it means much more than indeterminate detention. What we now have is the preposterous suggestion by the Australian government that we need to keep a cohort of people on Nauru in order to send a message to people smugglers back in Java. Now, Noel, there are only two ways you can keep a cohort of people on Nauru. Either you keep your present cohort there forever, or... Given that our military and intelligence services have successfully stopped the boats, 
you have to tell your military and intelligence services to basically close their eyes for a day or two, let a few more boats through, so we can get another fresh cohort of people to put on Nauru so as to send a message back to Java. It's ridiculous. There was, you pointed out, uh, again, to this group you were speaking to at Notre Dame, uh, an offer, and you reminded them there was an offer from the New Zealand Prime Minister to take 150. Now, per year. Per year. Now, why why are you pointing that out to them? What what What, what is the lesson to be drawn from well, this? Well, I'm pointing it out for two reasons. One, you'll remember that when John Howard first instituted the Pacific Solution with the mm. people who came off the Tampa, New Zealand offered to take 131 of those people and immediately John Howard had the good sense to say, yes, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. That's a good solution for those 131. Move forward now to Mr Dutton as the minister and Mr Turnbull as the prime minister. They say, oh no, we couldn't repeat what John Howard did because basically if those people went to New Zealand they may then want to migrate from New Zealand to Australia and this would send an adverse message to people smugglers in Jaffa. And this just shows how conspiratorial our political leaders have come and how lazy they've come in their intellectual consideration of this issue. You can see the reasoning that they've made because we have a reasonably porous border with New Zealand. We do. But how would you propose they go about it differently from this? The way I propose, being fair to Mr Turnbull and to Mr Dutton, was that after our excruciatingly long election campaign, all right, give them months, say until Christmas this year, to resettle those proven refugees from Nauru and Manus Island, to resettle them on any other third country in the world, Mm. but to admit that if they can't resettle them by Christmas, that after a a three-and-a-half-year wait... The only decent thing you can do with those people is then to bring them to Australia and for Mr Shorten not to play politics with it, for Mr Shorten to admit that it was his predecessor, Mr Rudd, who originally set this Mm. up, and it was Mr Shorten's shadow minister for immigration, Richard Miles, who during the last election campaign said, we expected all of this would be resolved within a year. Well, why not, after three and a half years, suspend the party politics and say, we will lead the Australian people, we will agree together that these people, if they can't be resettled anywhere else, they'll be resettled in Australia. But yes, guess what? We retain the bipartisan commitment of committing our resources of defence and intelligence to stopping boats or turning the boats Mm -hmm. back to Indonesia, while at the same time saying that it's time to clean up the backyard in the Pacific of Nauru and Manus Island. I can see people will say, doesn't that actually defeat the policy? Which it seems to me when I look at it, the policy has been, we'll stop them, we'll arrest them, we'll detain them, and the message is, you will never get inside this country. That seems to be what the message is. So if they get inside the country, hasn't the policy been defeated? No, it has not. Because basically what we now have, compared with back in 2012 when Angus Houston, the head of the Defence Forces, Mm. headed the expert panel for Prime Minister Julia Gillard, he said at that time it is not safe and legal to turn back boats. What we now have is a government that says to us it's now safe and legal to turn back boats. What we now have 
is the arrangements with the Indonesian Defence Forces, the arrangements with the Indonesian Police, the arrangements with the Indonesian Intelligence, admittedly with the payment by checkbook, but we have arrangements in place which stop the activity of the people smugglers and therefore the boats are not coming. As I say, Noel, it's the equivalent, what we've had with Nauru and the Pacific, that was like Kevin Rudd being the old man in the old mansion in the abandoned park who says, I want to keep the kids out of the mansion, so I will design a big nasty dungeon in mm. the bottom of the house. But then Mr Abbott, Mr Turnbull wake up one day and say, well, actually, we can actually lock the front door. That's what we've done with our military, yeah. with our intelligence services. Well, once you've locked the front door, why do you need to maintain the dungeon? And this is the unthinking nature of the Australian public on this issue. But furthermore, and I readily concede, if there be anyone who argues that there is a need to keep proven refugees warehoused in the Pacific in order to stop all boats, I say that's completely morally repugnant. And if any other country tried to repeat that, we would all undermine the Refugee Convention. Now, morally repugnant is the next thing I want to take off with you, but let's take a piece of music beforehand. And this is a piece of music you've chosen by your colleague, uh, Christopher Wilcock, SJ, who I happened to spy at Mass last week. In, he was up in Sydney with his family. Mass. He does. Yes. He does go to Mass. But you, you've chosen this piece, Who Did You See? Why? The words were composed by Andrew Hamilton, a long-time refugee advocate in Jesuit. the Jesuits, and Chris with his wonderful musical talent. I think it's one of the great tributes to our Jesuit Refugee Service. I was very privileged to be the director of the Jesuit Refugee Service in East Timor after the troubles there in 2001, 2002. I was actually on the streets of Dili when it was announced that Mr Downer was asking the Timorese to accept the people off the Tampa. Just think about that for a moment. We had the hide to ask the Timorese to take the people off the Tampa when we knew that up to a half of the Timorese population at that time was internally displaced or across the border in West Timor and all of their infrastructure had been destroyed. So this song speaks to me very evocatively about our role in accompanying refugees even in the face of the most cynical Australian politics. Dream. 
Did You See, composed by Jesuit uh, Christopher Wilcock, words by Jesuit Andrew Hamilton. Choice of our guest in this hour, Father Frank Brennan, who has been at Notre Dame University giving a, a speech on asylum seekers in particular. And Frank, just before we took that piece of music, you mentioned uh, morality, ethics is what came up. And you have referred also in your speech to what you call clear-eyed and misty-eyed popes on the world stage. Now, that's a, a little pointer to religious thinking and teaching, of course. What did you mean by clear-eyed and misty-eyed popes as well? What I meant was this, that when we come to consider whether or not there is a right to migrate in the world mm. and whether there is a moral coherence to national borders... Recent popes, like I suppose most moral thinkers, have said that the notion of a borderless world is very attractive. The idea that people be able to move freely, just like capital does, mm. is attractive. But that there are countervailing arguments in relation to a nation state or a community being able to maintain their own coherence. They accept it as complex is what you say. They accept it as complex. And so if you look at the papal teaching over the years, what there's been is a wrestling in a clear-eyed way with the complexities, while at the same time what I would call the misty-eyed compassion or solidarity, we've seen it most eloquently with Pope Francis. I mean, his first pastoral visit as Pope outside Rome mm. was to the island of Lampedusa, where refugees were turning up from Libya, having come through Africa. Uh, but how is it possible, in your view, in our country, in our political uh, community, to put more pressure on government to act more appropriately as you see it? Well, imagine if some of our bishops just got on a plane and went to Nauru or Christmas Island and were there celebrating Mass with the refugees and saying, we are here to stand in solidarity with you. What a difference it would make. It doesn't solve the intellectual dilemmas, but my God, it really speaks to us in terms of symbolism and solidarity that we need to take a stand. Now, mind you, they may have a problem getting a visa, I remember the famous time when I was to go to Nauru when Philip Ruddick was the minister and my visa was cancelled. And I remember Mr Ruddick saying to me in that very proper form he used to have, he said, Frank, I can assure you I didn't blackball you, but I can't speak for Alexander because Alexander Downer was the minister for foreign <laughs> affairs at the time. You heard it first on ABC Radio. Mm. Now, Francis has repeated that. He went to the US-Mexico border. And most recently, he went to the island of Lesbos, the Greece island, mm. very adjacent there to Turkey, where he stood with the patriarchs, basically giving the message to Europe that we have to stand in solidarity with these people. 
without, of course, giving the answers as to how many asylum seekers anyone should take. And these are the questions that Angela Merkel and other leaders have been wrestling with. Well, this particular pope has been quite activist, but as you point out, so was the ecumenical patriarch, the orthodox leader, sure. there with him. So was the patriarch of Greece there with yes. him. So we're seeing a, a coordination of leaders. Uh, you know, of course, that there's any number of ordained ministers in this country and nuns and lay people who've been arrested at prayer sit-ins in offices. Those sorts of things have been happening. I want to talk to you a little bit about what we can do to make a change. But before I do that, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the Pope. He took 12 Muslim asylum seekers back on his plane at one point. You'll remember that. And I'm sure the 12 was no mistake because 12 <laughs> referred to yes. the 12 tribes of Israel, which means everybody. So there's a symbolic mm. number in the 12. But he took the 12 back. Do you happen to know what happened to them in terms of, you know, what's the sustainable no, answer? No, I uh, I think they were initially given housing in St. Martha's or wherever, but I presume they're now living in houses around Rome. I can't imagine that they'd want to stay living in the Vatican. In doing that, though, uh, Francis, again, is doing one of these grand gestures to try to, I think, you know, bring about a reaction of conscience that I'm taking it, taking it back. Uh, you were asked in this speech by somebody, you know, look, I'm an ordinary person. You know, I'm concerned about this issue. I worry about it. You know, I think border protection is important, but I also don't want people rotting in Manus Island for three years. But what can I do? Um, and you gave an answer. I'm interested if you would share again. Yes. I said to that young woman that I think you have to retain faith in our political processes. Mm -hmm. We are a robust democracy. We live under the rule of law. And I think we have to expect that our community, when rightly informed, does have an innate sense as to what's morally right and wrong on these sorts of issues. So we need to retain that sort of confidence. But I did go on to say that sometimes there are issues that we find so depressing, so irresolvable, that we wonder what to do. And I shared with the audience the anecdote many years ago when the great American Jesuit Dan Daniel Berrigan, Berrigan yes. in Australia. I was hoping you'd tell this story. And... Dan Berrigan uh, was one who had protested often against nuclear arms. He spent half of his life in jail, as far as I can work out. And when he spoke at Dallas Brooks Hall, I was asked to give the vote of thanks. And I said I thought it was a tribute to the sense of irony of the organisers that they asked me, the only practising Jesuit lawyer in Australia at that time, <laughs> to move the vote of thanks to the most civilly disobedient Jesuit in the Western world. <laughs> You've got now, a few of them. At that event, we do have a few, at that event, a woman got up and said to Berrigan, but it's all so depressing, you know, the world is on the verge of war, what can we possibly do? And Dan, wearing his check shirt and chewing on his toothpick, got up to the microphone, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, you know, sometimes I feel like that. And what I do is I just put on my walking shoes and I go out and I break the law. Now, I think... <laughs> You're a law professor. I am. But I, the first book I ever wrote was called Too Much Order with Too Little Law, which conceded that there is a case for civil disobedience and conscientious refusal to comply with laws. And ultimately, that is the last stand that the conscientious citizen can take. Mm. And there may be cases where it's appropriate to be breaking the law, like those who are sitting in in the politicians' offices, etc. But in terms of those who are seeking a better way forward, I think it is to retain the hope that what is being done, for example, with Manus Island and Nauru, 
that it will be seen ultimately to be not only wrong, it will be seen to be very un-Australian. And also the treatment of the 30,000 who we've got waiting in our community, who don't have the full right to work or welfare, etc. See, what you've got to remember, Noel, we're a society which has prided itself on not having second-rate citizens. Mm. We are unlike California, for example. We do not have illegal, low-paid workers. The well, idea not many, and we, if we find them, we, we fix it. Yeah, We yeah. do occasionally, but mm. it's always been understood in Australia that people who are here, we provide them with the wherewithal to live a dignified existence, mm. and that's what we've got to get back to, and that's what we've got to remain confident in. You made another comment uh, while speaking about uh, the place of religion in the public square. Now, we just talked about the popes and the patriarchs and a love makes a way movement where a lot of religious leaders uh, have been actually uh, making gestures, some even civilly disobedient. But what was your concern about religion being frozen out? And I ask this because I know that the Prime Minister converted to Catholicism. And, you know, when he talks about this, in fact, it was Richard Leonard your colleague Richard Leonard, who 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 received him, that he who's on this program, of course, from time to time, mm. but I know that the Prime Minister becomes misty-eyed when he talks about his conversion. It's very important I'm to him. I'm pleased to hear it. Yes, but you you are making a case from a, you are a religious man, a troublesome priest. How can you insert this religious sense that you have successfully into public debate without being marginalised? Because that's a concern you have. Well, I suppose that's what I've given a lot of my life to, and books that I wrote like Acting on Conscience uh, deal precisely with that sort of question. Hmm. And I commenced the lecture, actually, by joining issue with what I heard from Andrew Denton the other day when he spoke at the National Press Club about the euthanasia debate. Now... I mean, I've got the highest regard for Andrew and I've been on television and at writers' festivals with him discussing this sort of issue. But I thought when he spoke at the press club, there was a distinct anti-religious and, dare I say it, anti-Catholic line Mm. saying that basically we just need religious people to move over. Butt out, get out of the debate. Butt out of the debate. Now, my point has been to say, well, no, hang on. I think religious sensibilities... And I think modes of moral argument within religious communities can be of enormous assistance, particularly in very secularist, materialistic societies, where it is very easy for the populace, 50% plus one, to say we're not so concerned about the vulnerable and the marginal. We're simply concerned about the great middle class. You're talking about the flaws within democracy where the, with the majority rule is what you're arguing. I yeah. am. Yeah. And I'm saying that in a country like Australia, particularly where you don't have a Bill of Rights, so you don't have a bevy of lawyers who are there able to argue in the courts oh, over the Fourth Amendment the or whatever yes. of yeah. these who are poor and yeah. vulnerable, then the idea that you simply leave it to what is the prevailing mindset of the intellectual elite or of those who enjoy the majority in the parliament It's not good enough. And so to have the plurality of viewpoints and religious viewpoints brought to bear is important. But what the religious people have to bear in mind, and you'll know this is where I sometimes run into trouble with some of my co-religionists, the fact that I think that my religion teaches X is right or wrong Mm. provides no answer as to what the law should be in relation to X 
particularly in a society where I know that the majority of my fellow citizens do not share my religious views. And Mm. so that's where there's the need for the discussion, not to be told to butt out, but rather bring the strengths of your tradition to bear and let's reflect together on what are the moral entitlements, particularly of those who are poor and marginalised. In your speech, you argued for reason, actually, that, that Catholics could take a reasonable part in this debate. So, so could uniting church people, so could Jews, sure. so could Muslims, so could everybody, that it's possible to do that. And that when Andrew Denton said, step aside, I think was his exact yes. word, uh, that this conversation could be had. But can I ask you, apart from reason, we know, and you know as well as I do, there are many people within our parliament uh, who have very strongly developed consciences. Mm. Why do you think their hearts are not moved? And I ask you this as a priest now. Their hearts are not moved by what's happening on Nauru and Manus Island, but they feel intellectually we must keep this policy in place for safety. What's happening there? Part of what's happening there is the changes that were made to our laws in 1996. Mm-hmm. And let me explain. We now live in a world where we're told that there are up to 60 million displaced people. Yep. Well, a nation of 24 million can't do much. Mm. It's a drop in the bucket for yep. whatever we do for some part of that 60 million. Now, we as a net migration country, we set a quota each year of the number of humanitarian cases that we take. Mm. Now, what changed in 1996 was that the government said for every person who successfully claims asylum on the Australian mainland, that will be one less place available for humanitarian cases offshore. Mm, I remember that. And so what it then means is that for politicians and decision makers, they say to themselves, well, look, any one year, we're going to help 20,000 people, say. Now, there might be 500 people over here who came by boat Uh, without a visa. They're doing it tough. Yep, we feel sorry for them, but basically... They should have come through the front door with a visa. They didn't. That being the case, yes, we haven't addressed the needs of those 500, but guess what? Because we haven't addressed the needs of those 500, we've addressed the needs of another 500. And those other 500 include, for example, some of the women at risk in the most remote refugee camps in Africa who could never afford a people smuggler. So, yes... It's very nice for you to be misty-eyed about those on Nauru, but what about those in that situation? There's equal horror everywhere, and our hearts are moved by this as well. And that then That's becomes the, argument. the calculus. Uh, so what's your persuasive one line to finish what has been a most interesting uh, interview? What's your persuasive one line or about how to relieve those people who have been in three years of endless detention? My line, and I know it causes offence to some refugee advocates, even in the church, is to say, I accept the bipartisan approach of our parliament, that the boats are stopped and will remain stopped. Mm -hmm. And whatever's done by our military and intelligence, given that the people are in flight not from persecution in Indonesia, that that is a justifiable policy. It needs to be more transparent, mind you. But given that... I say we need to just clean up our backyard, particularly in relation to those including children on Nauru who we have punished wantonly and for no strategic objective for the last three and a half years. Father Frank Brennan, 
Uh, it's been great to have you on the program again. Great to be with you, Noel. Always a pleasure. Let's take your last choice of music. It's it's Local Hero by Mark Knopfler. Why do you like it? I like it because one of my first experiences of refugees was in 1987 in the Site 2 refugee camp on the Thai-Cambodian border. There were 100,000 people in that camp. I worked with an extraordinary old uh, Belgian Jesuit who had worked many years in India and he spent his years of retirement, I mean his 70s and his 80s, working in this refugee camp. And the day I was leaving that camp, he had just got a new car and it had a cassette recorder in it. And the music was this. And as I drove out of that refugee camp for the last time, this was the music. And I still find it extraordinarily evocative. And dare I say, I become a little misty-eyed. This has been a podcast of Sunday Nights on ABC Local Radio. Thank you for listening.